Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 248. I love your book. I love anything that that explores the concepts of different minds, different ways that minds are constructed and make sense of the world. Uh, I want to put this one quote, I think is a great way to start. Uh, My mind is not a raft on a sea of words. It's an ocean of images. Fantastic. What does that mean, Temple Grandin? Well, everything I think about is a picture. Like, for example, I was just over at my student's seminar, and they had some Mexican food, which I had brought home. And then all of a sudden, I got this picture of Mexican food on the car seat. And I said, I better run out in the garage right now and get that out of the car, as I had forgotten to bring it in. (laughs) That's just a very simple example of visual thinking that I just did right before doing this interview. That is the voice of the great Temple Grandin, the absolute phenomenon that is Temple Grandin, the industrial engineer and PhD animal scientist and autism activist who was played by Claire Danes in an HBO movie about Temple's life, which earned Claire Danes an Emmy for her performance as Temple in that movie, which was titled very simply, Grandin. I'm Temple Grandin. She's an amazing visual thinker. Can you bring everything you've seen to your mind? Sure. Can't you? Temple was born in the 60s when autism was was really misunderstood. No speech yet at the age of... Four. Your child is clearly autistic. What's the next step for... We generally recommend an institution. And I need to thank, of course, Temple. Temple herself. Right there. Um... You are the most brave, intrepid person I've ever known, um, and uh, you have dedicated your life to to helping those who are are misunderstood and underrepresented. Um, and uh, I, this is in service of your work. Thank you. Thank you. Temple Grandin. She was born in 1947 at a time when words like neurodivergent and neurotypical had yet to enter the lexicon, at a time when autism was not well understood, and since she didn't develop speech until much later than most children, the age of four, she might have led a much different life if it hadn't been for people around her who worked very hard to open up a space 
for Temple to thrive and explore her talents and abilities. As a child, she developed an interest for the inner lives of animals at her aunt and uncle's ranch, and there were all sorts of people who mentored her through the years. And we'll talk about that. And we'll talk about animals. Animals, as you will soon hear her say, are sensory thinkers. And Grandin could not only empathize and commiserate with them in many ways, ways that other people often could not, but as a primary visual thinker, she could also solve the physical engineering and design problems associated with systems for managing animal behavior in ways no one else could. So, as an adult, she created a variety of systems to counter stress in both non-human and human animal populations. I first heard of Temple Grandin thanks to the squeeze machine, a device she invented while still in high school, to ease her own anxiety and tension, a device still in use today and used around the world by schools and by autistic adults. As a scientist, Temple Grandin is the author of more than 60 papers on animal behavior, and she has taught at Colorado State University for more than 30 years. Her bachelor's degree is in psychology, her PhD in animal science, and she's used both of those, along with her vast experiences, to write several books, including her most recent, Visual Thinking, all about three distinct ways that human brains create human minds to make sense of the world outside of the skull. Those three ways are verbal thinking, done by verbal thinkers, and verbal thinkers use the power of language to form mental abstractions. And verbal thinkers often think in linear orders or in arcs, beginning, middles, and ends, starting with a concept and then exploring it top-down. Then there are object visualizers who think in photorealistic images and can, from those images, discern emergent associations, a bit like consulting a map or a blueprint or scanning a Google image search page. And then there are spatial visualizers who can imagine in patterns and pure abstractions and prefer to do that. And these Spatial visualizers notice systems and rules and dynamics, whether that's thinking about music or math or code or physics. And that's the focus of Temple Grandin's new book, Visual Thinking, which we are about to discuss. Hi. Oh my God. Hey, how are you? I am doing just fine. The visual thinking that you describe, I think people hearing this for, for the first time would think, well, I do that. So how is it different from someone who is more verbal in their thinking? Well, the, there's people are mixtures of thinking. And in the book, Visual Thinking, I talk about observation visualizers like me, and I'm an extreme object visualizer. Everything I think about is pictures, absolutely horrible in higher math. Then you have your pattern mathematical thinker, visual spatial, and then you have verbal thinkers. And a lot of people are mixtures of the three things. But you get the kids to get a label, autism, dyslexia, something like that, um, um, or ADHD. That's why you can get an extreme object visualizer like me, or you can get an extreme mathematician who's a brilliant programmer or a brilliant physicist. And then there's a lot of other people that are kind of in the middle. One of the things that struck me was uh, you weren't aware where you were on this spectrum of thinking and, and this diversity of, of constructing mental models and everything all the way up into grad school because you just thought, what did you think? You thought that everybody thought visually like yourself? I thought everybody thought visually. In the very first work I did, I got down into cattle shoots and and cattle were afraid of um, shadows and coats on fences and people walking by. 
And I looked at what cattle were seeing. And I didn't even know that other people thought in words. And I didn't discover that till I was in my late 30s. And I was at an autism convention. And I am autistic. I'm no speech till age four. And I, and I asked a, a speech therapist, think about a church steeple. Now, when I think about church steeples, I start seeing them all around town. They are specific. And here I kind of scribbled up this paper, but all this, all they, all the speech therapists saw was two pointy lines. <laughs> and I go, wow, that's not how I think. And I was in my late thirties. I was at an autism convention. And that was kind of a real eye opener. And then I kind of figured out that um, there's different kinds of thinking in autism. One of the mistakes I made 25 years ago when I wrote thinking in pictures was thinking everybody with autism is a, is a picture thinker like me. That's not true. And then I started looking into other things and I realized there's this pattern thinker. Mm -hmm. And then I found this research studies. And the book is full of so much fantastic research. Oh, no, we put I, 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 I'm a good internet surfer. And I, um, <laughs> the, uh, the key word for finding my kind of mind is object visualizer. You need that term to find the articles. And I found the first object visualizing article in a reference list in a paper, the rather boring paper at three o'clock in the morning. And then I started using that magic keyword and looking at the, um, the ref citations and stuff and finding these papers where there's an object visualizer who's a picture thinker and there's the mathematical pattern visual spatial thinker. And they're actually kind of opposites. Lots of people are mixtures, but you won't find extreme object visualizer like me, an extreme mathematician and the same person. Now, the kind of stuff that my kind of thinking's good at, we're good at art, anything mechanical. Animals and photography, art and mechanics go together. And then over in the visual, spatial, mathematical, math and music go together. Mm -hmm. They're both patterns. And to help people get, be introduced to this, these you have object visualizer, visual, spatial, thinker, and verbal, three that you talk about in the book. Yes. I like that object visualizers, you describe it in your own mind, like uh, sometimes it can be like a little movie trailer, or sometimes it can be images, but the sort of unifying thing is you can... Uh, take all of that and you find associations. It's bottom up more than it is top down. Well, it's associational. Um, you might want to just try giving me a keyword. Pretend I'm Google for images and give me a keyword. Don't give me something I can see in here or in my kitchen. Something common like dog or cat. Oh, sure. Okay. Uh, asteroid. Well, I'm actually seeing this crazy movie where the astronauts went up on an asteroid. Um, I just was reading an article the other day about a meteorite that fell in somebody's yard over in the UK. So I'm seeing that picture. Now I'm now seeing a bed and breakfast I stayed at years ago in Scotland. Okay, because this meteorite fell in a place that would have those kind of um, kind of uh, hotels. <laughs> you see how it's associational. Yeah, yeah. When you're not just free associating that way, but when you're working on an actual problem like you would, would in your profession, like the, like with the cat, like the cattle shoot and things, how does it manifest in those situations? Well, the first thing I did was to go to every feed yard in Arizona and work cattle in all these different facilities. And they ranged in design from terrible to pretty good. And I started to see kind of certain rules of how to lay these things out. And I kind of took the good bits and started putting them together. Now, you can also get ideas from... Um, from other things, like a real common way of making a um, 
okay, I had restraint, you know, to hold the cattle. I got the idea for it to go like this, supermarket doors. It's the same, it's, it's, it's the same motion. Something that really struck me in the book was that you write that as you grew older, you have more and more experiences, you've seen more things, the associations that you're able to pull out of that become richer and, and better and more. Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's sort of like uh, when I read about artificial intelligence and how they have to give them these massive, massive training data sets. That's exactly how I think. Wow. That's how I think. I, I'm going, well, wow. the autistic brain made the um, AI systems probably. This is my assumption. You're going to make something intelligent. It's going to be, it turns out we're going to design all sorts of kinds of intelligences. And this is one that seems to be producing a, a new space in that all AI world. But you see, in the educational system, there's all this emphasis on algebra, because I think people that are more verbal and mathematical think you need algebra to think logically. Well, actually, a lot of my kind of mind is getting screened out um, because I can't do the algebra requirements. It's not visual. Well, algebra is too abstract. It's too abstract. Now, I can learn an algebraic uh, you know, like pi times radius squared for sizing hydraulic cylinders. Okay, that's a very specific thing. I memorized that. I can do that. And when I say hydraulic cylinder, I'm now getting pictures of a whole bunch of my equipment that's got hydraulic cylinders on. Right. You see, that's not abstract. We'll be right back with this interview with Temple Grandin after these commercial messages. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns and I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before and this helped. Now a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time and the question is time for what? If our time was unlimited how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? 
How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just there's too many. You can't get to everything and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. Close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow, all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases, all these fallacies that I talk about on this program... It's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's NetSuite dot com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. You write in the book you you came to words slowly and you had it wasn't it didn't come naturally to you and it doesn't come naturally to visual thinkers and, and not the, in the same way that it does to verbal thinkers well i i was didn't talk until age four um i also had some auditory processing problems like grown-ups talk really fast 
it kind of went gibberish. They had to slow down. Had trouble getting my words out. I'm, you know, and I had all the classic autistic symptoms when I was really young. But my mother always encouraged my drawing skill. I would just draw a single horse head over and over again, and she said, "Well, let's just do the do the whole horse, you know, and 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 let's do the saddle, the the bridle, you know, a lot of things associated with the horse." This really plays into something that that, that is just very important to me right now as well, which is you because I've spoken to other people who've experienced this, something similar, you were diagnosed as brain damaged. Well, I was two and a half at that time. And, and um, they didn't know what the, I went to a neurologist. They didn't know what autism was. This was back in 1949 when that would have happened. Uh-huh. And they, uh, the neurologist checked me for epilepsy, which I did not have and checked me for deafness. And fortunately referred me to a very good little speech therapy school that two teachers taught out of their home. And they were just those really good teachers who know how to work with kids. And a lot of emphasis on how to wait and take turns, emphasis on how to eat with utensils. And, you know, you were talking in the book about being, you had had tantrums and biting and stuttering. Oh, I did, yeah. And this may have been, you you think it could possibly be frustration because you were slow to get to the language part of things. Well, it's very frustrating when you can't talk. Yeah. Very frustrating. I would think about what I wanted to communicate, and then I couldn't do it. I, never, I remember not wanting to wear a hat, and I threw it out the window of the car on, in the driveway at home. Mother made me go get it. So then I got this idea of chucking it out the window on the highway, and that caused a bad car accident. Right. So this this makes me wonder, like, now you're, you're, you're very articulate, you're you're – People ask you to come speak. You teach. You, you're you're in a world of words as much as even though your mind is a world of, of visualization. Like, what is the experience of wielding language feel like for you subjectively? Well, a lot of things. I think if you went back and look and played back a lot of my talks, I kind of get certain phrases that I use. Um, now, when I read a book, maybe a science fiction book or a travelogue type of book. I see the, the exotic planet or maybe the exotic location. Um, it sort of plays like a movie as I read the book. Uh, you, one of the things about this is you, you say uh, it's difficult to watch a stand-up comedian. Why is that? It goes too fast. It just goes too fast. And, and I'm laughing at one joke. He said five more jokes. It, it just I just don't have the processor speed. And I have the, a lot of problems with kind of chit-chat, back-and-forth social conversations where people kind of get in a rhythm. I just can't follow that. I'd rather talk to somebody one-on-one about how to build concrete work or something like that or train dogs. That's kind of stuff that I think is interesting. And I, I just find this so intensely fascinating, especially because you had to live in a, or you lived in a world where you were unaware other people didn't think this way, but also you had to navigate a world of people who didn't uh, know you thought the way you thought. And, and the frustration just must have been immense. Well, fortunately, I was good at art. My mother's very artistic, too. And even in elementary school, I got recognized for being good at art. And then when I, and I made costumes for the school play with my singer cell handy when I was in fourth grade and this greatest little toy sewing machine actually sewed. And, and I loved making things. I'd spend hours and hours playing with little bird kites. In fact, I've got another book on calling all minds, my childhood 
parachute and bird kite projects. And I spent hours tinkering with them. Yeah. Hours and hours to get them to work better. I'm imagining people who are hearing this, they're thinking, hmm, I, I'm sure you get this all the time. I have a child that I don't quite understand, but they certainly exhibit a lot of interest and fascination in things that seem to fall in line with what you're describing. And I'm wondering if you have advice for a parent who is struggling with that or wondering about that, or they want to be a good parent in that regard. What I want to do is take the thing the kid gets fixated on and expand it. It's a mistake to try to stomp it out. Do not try to stomp it out. Kid likes cars. That's all. Likes electric fans. Some kids like to watch that. Okay, let's uh, read about cars. We can read about electricity and how a fan works. We could take some old fans apart. Uh, take that thing and expand it. And transportation is a very, very common fixation for these kids. Uh, airplanes, trains, and automobiles. And those are also things that can turn into careers. Fixing cars. That'd be for my kind of mind. Selling cars. Some of the more verbal. Autistics have been very, very good at selling cars because they knew the details of every car out on the lot. I feel like there were other people in the late 1940s, early 1950s who got screened out, sorted out, and didn't get to have a, an incredible life like you were able to lead. My speech teacher was really good. My mother always encouraged me, always encouraged my art ability. I was brought up in the 50s where manners and social interaction, basically, that was taught very structured way in the 50s. And I've had many granddads come up to me that discover they're autistic when the kids get diagnosed. You see, you also can have autism without um, speech delay. You know, social is just socially awkward. And then you can get, you know, really severe where you get some nonverbal people. And some of the nonverbal people can learn to type independently, completely independently. And they describe things like um, sensory scrambling and problems with controlling their movements. Well, the other thing is, uh, let's go back to the building things and the engineering kind okay. of stuff. Um, one of the things I write about in visual thinking is skill loss issue, especially on equipment that's very mechanically clever. The kind of stuff that gets invented and patented by the people that work in the shop, not the degreed engineers. And I designed the, um, all the cattle handling facilities, so the whole front end of every Cargill plant in North America. And when I look back on all the jobs that I worked on, I'm, I'm going to estimate that about 20% of these very talented welders that were inventing mechanical devices and drafting people, laying out entire factories, were either autistic, dyslexic, or ADHD. I remember one guy who stuttered, terrible student in school, dyslexic, you know, really socially awkward, took a welding class, started making stuff and selling it. Now it's a huge shop and sells his stuff all around the world. And what's happening now, at least in the U.S., we're paying the price. And I think it's some in the U.K. too, paying the price for taking out shop classes because um, they're retiring out. And right now, if you want to buy a poultry processing plant, all the equipment for it, it's all coming from Holland. And this goes back to their educational system. They don't look at the skilled trades. And my kind of thinking is sort of a lesser intelligence. I worked on big, complicated projects and where people visualize how to build things. It's a different kind of intelligence. It's not verbal and it's not mathematical. I call it the clever engineering department. Mm -hmm. 
and we need them to fix elevators, fix cars. I've been on some pretty questionable elevators. <laughs> Me too. Very questionable ones. So this was, was this the inspiration for the book? The inspiration for the book uh, was um, four places I visited in 2019, right before COVID shut everything down. And I went to two state-of-the-art pork plants, and all the, almost all the equipment came from Holland. I went to a state-of-the-art poultry plant, and all of its equipment came from Holland. Then I went to the Steve Jobs Theater, and the structural glass walls and the roof came from Italy, Germany, and Dubai. And I stood in the middle of that place screaming, we don't make it anymore. And then I started researching this further, and I found out that we don't that the state-of-the-art electronic chip-making machines from Holland. So this was really uh, bothering me. And and the people I worked with have retired out, and they weren't getting replaced. They're paying the price for taking out those shop classes. And then COVID hit. And I thought, this is the time to write the book. So I got together with Betsy Lerner, my brilliant verbal thinker co-writer, and she, we, we worked with our complementary skills. I would do my kind of jumbled up rough drafts. She would um, smooth them all out. And then she also added some things to it too. But we were working together knowing how our skills were different. This is the first step. And I've done a lot of talks to big corporations, steel companies, uh, banks, tech companies, computer companies, uh, construction people. And the thing is, we need all the different kinds of minds. But when I was working on a book signing uh, just in October for visual thinking, uh, they had one of the talks at a school. This is this October 2022. And I got to talking to the principal of the school. He didn't know what visual thinking was. And I think this is a concern because I think one of the big pushes for algebra is I think you have to have that for logical thinking. I don't use algebra for logical thinking <laughs> tell you that right now and and most of the people i've worked with people that had 20 patents a piece on mechanical devices could not do algebra and and you so algebra becomes this sorting mechanism it's a gatekeeper and and i, I don't know if i could graduate from high school today now i basically uh, never did out i flunked algebra in high school failed the test i went into college on probation thank goodness the introductory math class was mostly statistics where I can, that's more uh, applied, much more applied. Um, I had to drop engineering classes, drop physics classes. I couldn't do the math. I wanted to do engineering. So I majored in psychology. But then when I got out into industry, I discovered all the people in the shop. None of them college graduates. It's like I, I, I named it when I wrote Visual Thinking, the clever engineering department. And it, they have a very specific skill. And Holland, on their education system in Italy, I've looked them up. At ninth grade, the kid can go university track or tech track, and they don't stick their nose up at it. And that's why they're making that equipment, and we're not. Let's, let me just talk about this for a second, about how we got here in our school system. You You start right out in the beginning of the book saying... We assume that language is not just innate, but that it's the foundation of humanness. And it goes all the way back to Descartes and further than that. But uh, it's an assumption that language is what separates us from the beast, which is very much in your wheelhouse. Well, I think the other thing is that it's hard for a person who's totally verbal to understand thought without um, words. 
but you can do a lot of thinking without words. And they're learning more and more is being learned about animal cognition. And you, when it comes to animal cognition, like we, if you go all the, if you go all the way down to like uh, oysters, where it's they're just a stimulus response. You just don't have enough centralized nervous system tissue to do anything with. Right. So they're like stimulus response beings. Yeah, that's just a reflex. We'll step up from oyster to things like flatworms and 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 those organisms. Well, you see, it's a, it's a continuum. You see, it, I was just reading an article the other day about insect body formation just the other day, and that there's a head segment. They call it cephalization, where you start to form a bunch of nervous system tissue where you can get more and more association areas. All networks make notes. I can remember before airlines had hub airports. I'm old enough for that. And they just formed these nodes like, you know, Chicago, Denver, New York, you know, those big airports. And, um, and you look at Facebook maps, uh, that network forms nodes too. That also happens in the nervous system. All networks form nodes. I like this a lot. This is a I will derail our conversation so fast into talking about this. If we bounce up to, through the insect world and we get into the more and more complex nervous systems with more and more nodes and more forward propagation and back propagation. And more and more big association areas yeah. where the sensory information comes in, emotional signals come in, stuff from memory comes in. Uh, the motor circuits are integrated in there. You get cross-modal communication. All that stuff can mix together in association areas. And then you have the frontal cortex, which is all association. There's no memories there. There's no, um, you know, controlling walking and stuff. It's not there. It's purely higher association. And so what I'm driving at here is we get to a, a certain, all the way up through all this, what's missing for the most part is language. But these are all organisms that are you would consider conscious but they're also they're visual thinkers right well they would also a better thing to say is sensory thinkers okay now cattle's an animal that's very controlled by its vision but you take the octopus that's going to be a tactile world the bat has got the echolocation they can actually visualize with sound and i actually have some information in visual thinking of blind people can learn how to echolocate like kind of like a bat because uh, visual cortex takes up a huge, huge part of the brain. So if the person's blind at birth, that real estate or that all that area in the brain is going to get repurposed. It doesn't just stay blank. So it's a sensory-based world. What it is, not a word-based world. Like I'll say to veterinary students, get away from verbal language. Right. So in this this in this sort of view of things, in this model of things, where we are imagining consciousness as this ever and ever complex uh, network of nodes and cross-modal communication, forward propagation and back propagation, all these things. The This concept that was with us for a very long time philosophically and then scientifically for a while, that language is what makes human beings ultra-conscious or super-sentient. Like, well, it gives us things that we can do, like fly to the moon. I mean, there's some go up to space station. There's rockets up in the air right now. I'm, uh, no dog is going to do that. I mean, when I I've I've um, had the chance when I was in graduate school to dissect some brains, a human brain and pig brain. And you do the sagittal section right down here. The emotion centers. That stuff looks pretty much the same. The big difference is you've got this giant huge computer that sits up here 
that the dog doesn't have. Now you look at the emotion circuits, a lot of that stuff's very similar. That's where, but we have raw computing power where we can but um, do things that animals can't do. Now, birds, what's been learned about them that's super interesting, even though the brain is small, they're like the miniature electronic circuits. <laughs> the the, neur the neurons are smaller and, they, and it's sort of like the smallest computer chips and you're cramming more in there. So you get a lot of processor power in a small brain. So with this nice supercomputer that we've got, you've got these, uh, if you wanted to divide it into categories as you have, you've got these very powerful ways of creating abstraction spaces and organizing yourself, problem solving, object visualizers, visual spatial thinkers, and verbal neuro, uh, verbal thinkers. Basically, I like you to call them the picture thinkers, the math thinkers, and the word thinkers. Okay. So we've talked about object people, what, what you have very specifically, the spatial visualizers. How are they different? Well, they're, they're mathematical. It's patterns. Like I go through my science magazines, my nature magazines, I'm amazed at the patterns that are showing up in chemistry. Beautiful geometric patterns that are really pretty. And they're in, in materials. They're in stuff in the body and uh, cells. It's where I think in pictures. And there's a lot of degreed engineers that aren't that good on, on the clever engineering department. Because when I go back to every factory that I ever worked on, and I spent a lot of time out in construction sites, there's a very interesting division of the engineering. You have the degreed engineer that does boilers and refrigeration. Every food plant has to have that. And that's much more mathematical. Shop people I worked with, and we never touched that stuff. We didn't understand it. Make sure the roof doesn't fall down. <laughs> um, the uh, power and water requirements. And then the clever engineering people that sometimes barely graduated from high school are inventing mechanically complicated equipment. And verbal thinker, um, I don't put a verbal salesman in charge of a construction project. <laughs> so verbal thinkers think l linearly, beginning, middle, and end. Well, much more linear. Verbal thinkers also overgeneralize. Okay. Like they'll might say, um, we well, need to have an inclusive classroom for autism, let's say. But they have no idea how to do it. You see, both the mathematicians, in my mind, is bottom up. Here's specific examples where something worked. Here's specific examples of things that don't work. Sort of like that multivariate analysis and statistics. You see which factors load. Yeah. Uh, my mind puts things in categories like on spreadsheets. Ah, uh, that's a nice way to think of it. I was thinking of maps. That's good. And I'm seeing, you know what I'm seeing now? I was an expert on the IBM key punch and card sorter. Yeah. And it's a mechanical spreadsheet. I can see those cards now going into the slots. I think I've had flashes of this, but never if I felt like I wasn't putting words to it or trying to trying to concentrate it into words. I like the I like the the spreadsheet analogy is really that helped that helped me visualize it. Oh, I like to blow students' minds. I like to pull out those kind of stiff boarding passes and I said, imagine you had to punch your data into airline boarding passes and put them in this machine called a card sorter. <laughs> yeah. I call the airline boarding pass the evolutionary remnant of the IBM punch card. <laughs> <laughs> so I put all this together and it seems as though you make a strong argument for this, and it's something that I've been noticing in my own research, that we have a school system that doesn't really know what to do with all of this. Well, well, the kids used to go in shop class because I had people I worked with that owned big metal fabrication shops. They took one welding class because I remember when they were tiny, little, tiny shops. 
And one of them built a little cattle handling facility for me. He's got a gigantic company now in a corporate chat. And what are some of the ways that schools are screening this out? Well, they've, they're screening it out, at least in the U.S., uh, is they've taken out all the hands-on classes. People ask me, what would you do to fix the schools? I put all the hands-on classes back in. Shop, sewing, woodworking, musical instruments, theater. I loved making costumes. Uh, auto shop, welding. Put all that stuff. Home economics. I put all that stuff back in. All the practical things. Field trips. Field trips. Yes, absolutely. And and I wouldn't make algebra a requirement for everyone. Now, if you're going to go into in mathematics, chemistry, programming, yeah, then you take algebra. But all the people I worked with that were people that had 20 patents. Is there movement out there to make changes? They're starting to be. They're starting to realize uh, some states are starting to put it back in and realize it's got a problem. And then there's other people that are just clueless. And the problem is you have educators today and too many kids today and teachers, they're totally removed from the world of practical things. I had a student in my class that never used a tape measure. Uh, kids are not using scissors. Uh, when I did a book signing for Calling All Minds about five years ago, only 20% of the kids or 30% of the kids in Denver had ever made a paper airplane. Oh, no. You've got people totally removed from the world of the practical. Here, I want to talk about genius for a second. You have a chapter about this. Um, but here's a th question that I have asked lots of people this question, and I am very honored to get a chance to ask you this question. What is your definition of genius? Well, I think there can be different kinds of genius. You have Einstein, who probably was autistic, and um, no speech until age three. And he, you know, he was... Um, he was one of these ones where I think the object visualizing brain and the math brain somehow got welded together but he was, uh, you know, what he did was genius. You can have pure mathematicians that are geniuses. Uh, Elon Musk is on the autistic spectrum. The engineering things that he's done are really wonderful. We'll have to wait and see what happens with Twitter. That's another story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But from an engineering standpoint, he's brilliant. And then you have people that are artistic geniuses. Um, in the visual thinking, I talk about Michelangelo. Rubby little 12-year-old, dropped out of school, running around in the churches, grooving on great art because they were commissioning great art, grew up with stone-cutting tools. And then another artist saw him and took him into his shop and apprenticed him. So it starts with exposure, then mentoring. And I had a fantastic science teacher in high school who got me interested in science. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. What was your exposure and what was your mentoring? Well, my mentor for science was Mr. Carlock, my science teacher. I owe a lot to him. And he gave me all kinds of interesting projects. He spent huge, huge amounts of time with me. And he showed me how, you know, school can be a pathway to becoming a scientist. You know, this is where mentors are so important. Then there was Anne out at the ranch. That's where I got exposed to the cattle industry. That all started when I was a teenager. If I hadn't gone to that ranch, I would not be in the cattle industry. But the thing I learned in the cattle industry I could do all this engineering stuff, and it's called industrial process equipment. And I had to be very careful to never use the title engineer. I always wrote livestock handling consultant. And then the person that laid out all the factories with a single um, 
drafting class would just label it draftsman. Well, this person was designing and patenting equipment. I was there seeing it. That's the other part of engineering, the clever engineering department. And one thing I wrote up in the in visual thinking that I really like was Marine Innovation Boot Camp, where you've got some PhD engineers, mathematicians, and then you've got some truck driver Marines, and you give them a pile of junk and you say, make a vehicle. And the truck drivers were much better at sort of figuring out how to make a vehicle out of a pile of junk. But the thing is, you need both kinds of minds. Let's look at 3D printing and robotics. Those are all mechanical devices. Someone like me makes the tool on the end of the robot's arm that really works. A mathematician has to program it. But you you just you straight out come out and say, genius does not happen in a vacuum. You have to have mentoring. And I'm a big believer in exposing kids to lots of different things. I was exposed to a little flute when I was a child. I couldn't figure out how to play it. I got a chance to program the same computer that Bill Gates learned on. I had to drop the class. He's running over. He was younger than I, I am. So he was a kid running over the university computer lab and and learning on it. I couldn't. I, I could log yeah. into it. That's about it. So exposure to lots of things so that, that you can find your thing. Lots of different things. And then you kind of see what you gravitate towards. But then you also have to develop it. And that's where you have to have mentoring. You have to work on developing things and you've got to work on always continually learning. Well, let me, uh, before I let you go, I wanted to, uh, let's, let's, let's try another visualization. Okay. Uh, all right. All right. Something that's not around you. I can only think of something that's really out there. Um, but not something that's around where it'd be in my house or. Oh yeah. Let's go with it with an, with an animal. Uh, I want to go with dolphins. Oh, I'm seeing flipper from that show that I watched when I was a kid. Um, I'm seeing a dolphin show in Mexico that was kind of grubby and not very nice. I'm now seeing uh, dolphins out in Hawaii that were um, in a research institute. See, I'm kind of going through the dolphin um, files in my brain. Okay, but now I'm now with the dolphins in Hawaii. Now I'm up at the uh, astronomy observatory I got to visit in Hawaii. Because now dolphin Hawaii, what's another interesting thing in Hawaii? I remember climbing up a big kind of a mountain in Hawaii and you went went from a, like grazing land to jungle in a very short period. I'm now seeing I'm now seeing a volcanic eruption in Hawaii and I'm seeing where lava came down on the road and solidified and it was like this it was maybe a foot high on the road and I walked on it. Now I'm feeling it, it was like really weird. The road just went into a, you know, a hardened sea of lava. See, I'm kind of going through the Hawaii file. Now I'm seeing another place I went to look like a fancy hotel and a golf course on a moonscape. Here's, well, here's my last question for you. Oh, today. we got to talk about the Fukushima. Okay, well, let's talk about it. All right, let's talk about <laughs> Fukushima real quick. Sure. I wrote in visual thinking, engineers calculate risk. Visual thinkers like me see risk. And when I learned why Fukushima burned up, I'm going, how could you not do this? So the mathematicians did a great job of making it earthquake proof, and it shook and it shook and it shook and it was fine. 
but they hadn't visualized water coming in and flooding the site. When the tsunami came 20 minutes later, watertight doors would have saved it. They didn't see the water flooding the site, drowning the electric emergency cooling pump. I can't design a nuclear reactor. All I know is electric motors don't run into water. If that pump doesn't operate, I'm in so much trouble, it's not funny. And they don't see it. And then I also talk about the Boeing Max. And I think in the beginning, that was a visual thinking mistake. Um, when I found out what an angle of attack sensor was, it's a little delicate thing about the size of a large pen. It sticks out under the cockpit window, measures air angle. Normally, it just tells the pilot well, if the plane's going to stall. They had hooked a single one of these things up to a computer that controlled the plane that the pilots didn't even know about. And when the thing was busted, the plane thought it was stalling when it was flying normally, and the pilots are yanking back on the hill. And I remember going to the airport uh, and looking at these things and seeing how fragile they were. And when that accident first happened, the um, uh, it was a, the airline in, in Lion Air. Um, I only had two pieces of information that they had happened. The plane was only a few months old. I didn't even know what brand of plane it was at this point. And I looked up the, the radar, and it, the radar on takeoff is like a roller coaster. And then the next night, I gave a talk, and I get Boeing's going to be in deep poo-poo over this one. I figured something had to be drastically wrong with the plane for the radar to look like a roller coaster. I just had two pieces of information. I had the radar uh, tracing, and I had the fact that it was a brand new airplane. Yeah, and it, it, you know, nobody asked. He says, "What happens if I break the angle of attack sensor? What's the plane going to do?" Well, it thinks it's stalling when it's not. So, and I could see them, you know, probably discussing in the factory. Well, the suits are crazy. I wired this up to that fancy computer. The pilots were furious about it. And that one pilot wrote, told the Seattle Times, I says, I said, oh, I flew that thing last week. I'd like to know what's in it. <laughs> this would make me feel really happy when the pilot says that. Well, they've got it, they've got it fixed now. I've been on that plane. I've been on that plane. Uh, they've got a good coffee maker in that plane now. I've been on it probably about five times. <laughs> I'm not worried about it. Now. Ed has got a good coffee maker, which makes me. He's got a really good coffee maker. <laughs> That's just good for giggles. I love it. Temple credit. You're, I love this book. What do you, I guess as a final, I guess as a, as a goodbye question, like who, what do you hope people get from this book more than anything? What is your, what is your, what do you hope happens when it goes out in the world? I think one of the biggest things I hope happens with this book is that the kids that are different can get out there and get in good careers. They can be real high end skilled trades. Uh, we need to start building some of this equipment again. Um, some of the most fun times I had in my life was working with uh, the, uh, the shop people on equipment. I want to see the mathematical kids get out there and doing getting really good programming jobs. I want to see the kids that are different get into really good careers. That's what I'm really working on right now. And I'll, when I talk to corporations, I'm saying, hey, you need these different kinds of minds. And we've got infrastructure that's falling apart. Uh, power lines uh, coming down and things like that. They aren't maintained. Yeah, we need all the different kinds of minds. Oh my God. Thank you so much for, for spending all this time with me. I have enjoyed spending all this time with you. Uh, thank you for writing all these books and for staying active out in the world. And thank you for getting the COVID shots. So you could go be free and fly everywhere. Well, yeah. And as soon as I got the shots, I'm going, 
After I got the second one, I go three weeks from now, freedom. I was jumping up and down in the parking lot. I'm glad to see you out and free. I'm uh, sorry, you, sorry you're so busy, but I hope you're enjoying yourself. Well, thank you so much. Uh, thank you for all your time. It was a pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I really liked being on the show. is it for this episode of the you are not so smart podcast i have a book it's a new book it's been out for a little while but it's new a couple months it's called how minds change you can find a link to that book and all sorts of extra content already available for you for free at the page for that the website for it links in the show notes um temple grandin amazing huh temple grandin's new book is called visual thinking notes to all of that over at you are not so smart.com and you can find links to everything that we ever talk about, every single episode, over at youarenotsosmart.com. For all the past episodes, go to Stitcher and SoundCloud and iTunes and Omni and Spotify and Simplecast and uh, Audible, Amazon, all that stuff. You can follow me on Twitter at David McGraney. Follow the show at NotSmartBlog. Also on Facebook at slash youarenotsosmart. And if you'd like to support this operation to help make it better, Go to patreon.com slash you are not so smart. Pitching in at any amount will get you the show ad free, but the higher amounts get posters and t-shirts and signed books and other things. Opening music, that's Clash by Caravan Palace. And please tell everybody you know about the show. That's how you support podcasts. Tell people about the episodes you liked. Get the word out there. Word of mouth. That's how you do it with podcasts. And I have a Substack. It's a newsletter. You can sign up for that. The link is also in the show notes for this episode. And check back in about two weeks for a fresh, new, You Are Not So Smart podcast. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.